Welcome to A Dying Podcast. My name, as always, is Nils. And today I'm truly excited uh, because we have a guest who is personal hero of mine, I must say. Uh, one of my biggest idols currently living on the planet today. His name is Ken Wilbur. He's very well known to a lot of people. But if you don't know who he is, well, just Google him. <laughs> but if you don't have time for that, um, he is, in my mind, one of the most important philosophers we have in the world today. He's the creator of the integral theory, which is a theory that basically explains everything and that I, for one, at least currently, am signing up to. Uh, he's the author of Spectrum of Consciousness, which is my current Bible, but that's because that's the only uh, book of him I've read so far. I have a long list to cover because he's written more than 25 books uh, in this field. It's widely translated. He is referred to often actually as the Einstein of consciousness studies. So it's a great honor and pleasure for me to be able to present a conversation with him on this very podcast. And without further ado, I give you a conversation with Ken Wilbur. Please enjoy. Welcome to A Dying Podcast, Ken Wilbur. How are you doing today? Just fine, my friend. Lovely. So uh, I've been wanting to have you on this podcast probably since I started it, uh, for obvious reasons for, for listeners. But let's just get straight to it. Most people will know who you are, but I'm personally curious to learn when did your interest and your work and your fascination in, in consciousness and everything that's connected to that start? Well, I was um, raised uh, in America and I did most of my early studies were uh, entirely, basically science oriented. And I was brought up um, sort of a standard Sunday school attending Protestant. And these, these, this version of uh, religion was indeed kind of a standard, you know, mythic believing uh, Jesus Christ is the only uh, realized uh, person in history and he was the one and only son of the one and only God and he died for your sins and all of that uh, and when I hit adolescence like a fair number of people I basically just stopped believing that and I continued believing the science that I had spent actually most of my study time studying and then towards the end of my adolescence I was I don't know 1718, I actually read um, a very long three-volume work by the Zen scholar known as D.T. Suzuki, and the book was called Essays in Zen Buddhism, and it kept talking about this thing called Satori, and Satori was a realization of a, a sort of an ultimate, it was an actual experience of kind of ultimate unity consciousness. A lot of people have peak experiences of they're sort of walking along one day or listening to music or some such, and they have this peak experience where they sort 
drop being their own individual selves. Some people actually experience sort of dying to that individual self. And then they have this profound awakening as being absolutely one with everything, one with this ground of all being. Um, it's absolutely all-embracing and all-inclusive. And I just, I finished reading that book and I was shocked. Because, and this was a while ago, uh, this was um, about, um, well, it was almost 50 years ago, um, basically. Um, and so you, at that time, we didn't even really have things like transcendental meditation uh, in this country. It was pretty much unheard of. And I was shocked to hear this thing called Satori, and that it really did seem to be a, a, a a genuine core of various mystical traditions and that they weren't all about their believing in magic or myths or any of that kind of stuff, but in having a satori of waking up to who and what you really are. And so that was a, a, a really uh, profound um, experience for me, was just hearing about that. And so I actually started looking around for any Zen masters who, who were in America. And back then, there were about a dozen or so around the country. And so I started running those down. But I also started this um, absolutely obsessive search for any of the various ways that human beings around the world and throughout history had talked about any sort of similar kind of experience, like what is possibly wrong with humans right now, and what do they have to do in order to get more in touch with some sort of reality, or just even to be happier uh, about themselves, um, and somehow... Um, more at peace and more okay with how things were arising around them. And that was very intense search. And I ended up uh, really on this unbelievably obsessive reading and studying program. And I really did look at um, most of the great cultures around the world and what they had come up with that they considered to be their version of a ultimate or genuinely true reality. And this did include various types of approaches in the West. So I went through things like, uh, you know, the entire Freudian uh, canon, all the people who were doing psychotherapy or working with shadow um, material. I looked at all the uh, sociological approaches and at various um, schools that talked about how language had impacted who and what we were and how those were important. And not only was I actually going out and looking for people like, okay, who's a real Zen master? I want to actually start practicing that. I also went out and found, okay, who's an actual psychoanalytic-oriented psychotherapy? I want to actually start doing that. And so what I found is that there were about six or seven major, major families of various approaches to what was ultimately real and what you needed to do 
in order to get in touch with that reality. And so initially, my tendency, which is the way I was brought up in science, was to consider, okay, one of these approaches is real, and all the others are wrong, or not real, or not correct, or just mistaken, or something. But the problem is, I was actually practicing almost all of them. I'd actually gone out and found people who were doing these things, and I was actually practicing them. And so, I knew that there was at least some degree of relative truth in in almost all of them, because I was getting something very important out of all of them. And so I had a really sort of major shift in actually sort of the fundamental way that I thought. And I went from thinking, okay, which one of these approaches is right and which and all the others are wrong, to instead thinking, okay, how can all of these approaches be true but partial how can they all be right and that became that became the obsessive question for me at that point and when i was 23 years old i had this sort of major insight or understanding and it was that there they were indeed uh, all partially right and they did fit together. And they fit together because there wasn't just one state or one condition of consciousness, but there really was uh, an entire spectrum of consciousness. And it it went through around, there were around six or seven major levels to it. And each of the different approaches that I had had found were actually dealing with one of these different levels in the overall spectrum. And so that's when I did indeed write my first book called The Spectrum of Consciousness. Um, and I just sort of went on from there. And I ended up over the next 50 years or so um, writing about 30 books and just continuing to expand on that fundamental um, insight that most of the various approaches that human beings have come up with are true but partial. And they all fit together. And the reason they're all true but partial is that literally the human mind, the human brain, is incapable of producing anything that's just 100% false. I mean, as I say, nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. And therefore, we really do have to look at all these different approaches, many of which we wanted to throw out, and we have to ask instead, okay, how can they all fit together? In what ways are the truths that this particular approach is telling me somehow true but partial? And then how does that fit with these other true but partial approaches that I've found? And so in sort of book after book after book, I uh, and I started calling this approach integral because that's what it was. It was integrative or pulling together these various approaches. And I went through sort of one major discipline after another after another and wrote books that were called things like integral psychology, integral spirituality, integral sociology, and on and on and on. Um, that approach started to catch on. And there's now a fairly large uh, worldwide approach that uses uh, uh, this integral framework, and it will create 
a, a truly holistic, in the best sense of that term, um, but a truly comprehensive approach to, well, one of the professional journals that we have has over 63 different disciplines, art, history, business, law, medicine, 63 disciplines that have been completely reinterpreted using this integral framework. So it really is kind of a kind of a big deal. And it turns out that one of the areas that I had spent a lot of time uh, integrating was something that we well generally call developmental psychology. And unlike a lot of things like Zen Buddhism or some of the central mystical traditions that whose original forms go back several thousand years. And even if we look at shamanic forms, those can go back maybe 10 or 20,000 years. But unlike those types of waking up experience, these types of developmental or growing up disciplines, those were only discovered about 100 years ago because in the ways that you do actually grow and develop, uh, from the time you're born uh, into your adult years. Those stages really are something that you can't see by introspecting. They're much more like rules of grammar. Um, all of us who are speaking language right now are following a large number of, of grammar rules, but almost none of us can write down what those rules are. Many people don't even know that they're following them. So these growing up stages are only fairly recently discovered. But one of the things that they show is that the earlier stages of development, well, a quick summary of some of these models is that they go from just limited egocentric stages to then identifying more with a group or group of people. Those are called ethnocentric stages. And then identifying with all groups or all humans. So at that point, we believe that it's appropriate to treat all people fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. Well, that belief only emerges at, at, that, at that next stage, which is often called not ethnocentric, but world-centric. And yet most developmental models show that there are even higher stages, and a large number of them actually use terms like integrated or integral. And that turns out to be what happens at some of those um, higher or further reaches of human development, is that you really do start asking questions like, how does it all fit together? And you won't settle for things that are limited or partial or fragmented or broken. And so that's one of the reasons that I think this kind of work has tended to catch on around the world is that increasingly individuals are actually moving into stages of development that find something like an integral uh, framework or an integral approach to be something that makes absolute eminent sense to them. Whereas people at, at previous stages, they can see it, some of them like it and adopt it, but there also tends to be a tendency to not even be interested in um, 
genuinely holistic or truly integrative or integral or synthesizing approaches to reality. But increasingly, we're seeing that happen. And so that's been one of the fun things of my life is, is to watch that uh, in, um, continue to increase. Wow, yeah. So this brings up a lot of, of thoughts and, and questions to you. I think one of the things that comes up for me is is the way uh, Integral is, is described is also such a clear move from focusing on you know life or existence, and in this case, science or research, as if it was a competition, to instead focus on the process and the pattern finding, which um, I guess mimics, or to me at least, exactly mimics to some extent human development. Where once you move beyond focusing on, you know, looking at everything as a made-up competition, and there can only be winners and losers, and your only job is to to win, then instead of looking at it as a game that we want to keep playing, <laughs> and and the process is sort of the key that we keep following. So that just it just comes up for me, uh, and then uh, you know questions that come up center around something that I've been talking about on this podcast that I to me seems fairly clear is how the development of an individual and the development of humanity as a whole sort of mimic each other. Uh, that in one sense, we're just one huge individual going through the exact same stages at least as you would in your individual life. Right. Yeah. So uh, does that fit into the model? Well, um, there's actually um, an inherent part of the model. Um, the recent model is sometimes referred to as uh, an aqual integral model, and that's just A-Q-A-L. And what A-Q-A-L is short for is actually all quadrants, all levels, all lines, all states, all types. And those terms are actually areas that I had essentially come upon in my ongoing quest to find truly integrating frameworks that could indeed sort of make sense of everything in in a certain sense. And uh, what quadrants are, levels, by the way, are uh, all quadrants, all levels. Levels are the part that I had come upon first. And that's what I wrote, like Spectrum of uh, Consciousness about, and continue to look at that area very, very carefully, all the way down until uh, in a book, called integral psychology, I actually looked at over a hundred different developmental models and did a meta-analysis of all of them to find what was common in all the major levels of development that all of these different models, East and West, uh, had come up with. So that's the levels part. But a part I'd also stumbled upon, particularly in a book I did it was called Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, which something was called Quadrants. And I sort of stumbled upon that because, like, certainly in my science education, and even in my first couple of books, the tendency was just to look at things and kind of as objective uh, and, and detached away as you could, and that was sort of accepting the kind of third person view as if that's the, you know, one basic correct view that you should take. And increasingly, I started realizing that, well, actually, there, there really were other dimensions that were important. 
as important as just this third person objective view. And so I really started looking around for those in the same way that I had looked around uh, for the, for all the different levels of consciousness that we had that we had access to. And this actually turned out to be a very obvious, fairly straightforward um, situation. And and it didn't take that much actual looking, although it's it still isn't something that, that's widely recognized, but a great deal of the integral approach is not widely recognized, uh, which is kind of wild. Um, although most people who see the different aspects don't disagree with it once they're made aware of it. But most people just have no idea that these areas are actually there. And it's certainly true in terms of various um, methods or approaches to reality where a lot of people are indeed trying to uh, mimic objective third-person scientific approaches. Um, but it turns out that we really have at least three very, very major um, areas or dimensions of our own everyday um, existence. And these go back as far as the ancient Greeks who referred to them as the good, the true, and the beautiful. So one of the ways, and, and I, of course, had heard of that, and the good referred to like moral in endeavors or ethical dimension and that wasn't so much objective that a lot of people actually said you couldn't there was no scientific proof for moral or ethical values that you know you couldn't get um what should be out of what is um and so the whole idea of the good wasn't really felt to be something you could get out of science. But science referred to just in, in the good, the true, and the beautiful. Ethics was the good. And in science, was just the true. And, and here, that specifically just meant objective truth, something that you could just objectively true. And so we're just going to call that a small version of truth. That's just the true. And then the beautiful, of course, is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So the good, or that would be first person. And it was also maintained that you couldn't get beauty out of truth or out of science. So you had morals, science, and art or aesthetics. And those turned out to be aesthetics or, or subjectivity, of course, was a first person approach. And then when you and I are approach, or looking at each other and thinking, how should we treat each other in moral or correct ways? Then that's a second person. A first person is the person speaking. That's I or me. And then second person is the person being spoken to. That's you or thou. And then third person is the person or thing being spoken about. So that's it or objective. So we have a first person, we have a second person, and we have a third person. And the way those actually turn out, and, and by the way, there are a lot of um, really major philosophers, for example, who maintain that those really are three of the most fundamental dimensions that human beings have access to. So people, a um, person is largely 
widely considered to be the greatest living philosopher uh, in the world today is a German by the name of Jürgen Abermas. And Abermas maintains that every person, every single time they talk, they're taking up a position to three different worlds, not just the objective world, but three different worlds. One is a subjective world. One is the objective world of truth. Then there is a subjective world that's not just truth, but truthfulness and includes aesthetics or beauty. And then one is this interpersonal second person realm of uh, you and we and ethics and morals. And so these turn out to be uh, really central to what we have access to. And then the way I sort of refine that a little bit is that our first person dimensions, what we are aware of as individuals, um, that's a singular dimension. That's just, you know, myself. And then as we interact, that becomes plural. So we have a first person subjective and then a second person intersubjective, that's singular and plural. And then we have an objective it world. Those are things like an atom or molecule or a cell or that tree out there, that mountain out there, whatever we look at in an objective way. But those also uh, happen in singular and plural forms. So you can have just an individual objective thing, but then most uh, systems theorists, for example, maintain that all those individual objects are actually interwoven into systems of vast networks. They still look at them objectively. They're still not uh, acknowledging subjective values like uh, goodness or uh, beauty or value or anything like that. They're just looking at objective third-person realities. But what that really means is you have both uh, first-person singular and plural, and you have a third-person singular and plural. And those can be, can, if you just combine the two objective versions, then you just have the good, the true, and the beautiful, or first person, second person, third person. And incidentally, every major sophisticated language in the world has first, second, and third person pronouns. So these are realities that have been recognized by basically every human civilization in existence. So these are very real realities, which you can all you can also slightly give a little bit more sophisticated version of that by realizing that there aren't just three of those dimensions. There are four, and that third person does exist in both singular and plural, just like your first person does. Well, those actually turn out to be the inside and the outside of an individual and a collective. That's exactly what those are. The inside is a subjective dimension, Something looked at from an outside, that's looked at in a third-person objective dimension. And an individual is the um, particular, well, singular version, whether it's singular first person 
or singular, third person, and then the looking at it in a collective version, that's the indeed the collective version, whether first person or third person. So you have the inside and the outside of the individual and the collective. And those all arise together. And so you really can't separate those from each other. And that's one of the insights of, of the integral framework is that all four of those quadrants are arising simultaneously. They interact together. They influence each other. But, of course, people can just pay attention to one or the other of them. So there are disciplines, for example, that only look at the exterior, the outside, the objective third-person view of an individual holon. Holon is a term that we use that means a whole that's part of a larger whole. And pretty much everything in reality is a holon. So if you just look at evolution itself, it went from whole quarks became parts of whole atoms, whole atoms became parts of molecules, whole molecules became parts of whole cells, whole cells became parts of whole organisms, and so on. So integral view says that reality is composed basically not of things or events, but of holons. And that's essentially true. So what we're one of the things we're saying is that these four quadrants arise together, they tetra-interact, they tetra-evolve. And if you're looking at the different levels of consciousness or reality, each level has all four quadrants. And so that means that there's going to be a relation, a direct and, and inherent relation between individual development and cultural development. Individual development is indeed looking at the upper quadrants, and cultural or collective development is looking at the what we call the lower quadrants. And so that's one of the uh, points that, that Integral emphasizes, is that individual evolution and collective cultural social evolution, those go together. Now, they, you can have a various emphasis. So you can have individuals who are evolving um, essentially ahead of where their broad culture is at at any given time. Also, a lot of people that are still lower in terms of their own development than where their culture is at any time. But essentially, these two are unfolding across these four quadrants as they move through their various levels of evolutionary unfolding. Wow, that makes perfect sense. And I, I always want to share regarding holons. So last year I had an experience where I I personally realized that um, not having that word uh, accessible yet, because I hadn't heard of, of, of uh, that explanation, but I personally understood and realized how, um, you know, if, if we simplistically as human beings sort of look down and up and by looking down, I mean, we're, we're, we're looking into tinier, <laughs> tinier particles, atoms, molecules, etc. Right. And looking up would be celestial bodies that everything behaves in exactly the same thing. We could call all of these things, these holons, particles to some extent. Uh, we tend to call, call it particles when we, when we talk about 
tiny things, right? And um, the small things and the big things behave in the same thing and in the same way. They're basically attracted to certain things, repelled by other things, and have these forces upon them at all times. And human beings are behaving in exactly the same way. We're attracted to certain people, certain places, certain activities, certain food, and repelled uh, by others. And we're, we're just sort of acting out what the forces are telling us uh, to do. Or at least, you know, if we want to feel good, we do that. We can also tell ourselves to, to go against <laughs> these things, and then we end up feeling not that good. And then uh, this was before I know, knew of your work with Holons. Then someone pointed out to me, because I wrote a text about this on Medium, thinking, of course, that I was unique in my smartness, which is never never the case. <laughs> Someone pointed out to me, this sounds very much like Ken Wilber's right. uh, uh, description of holons. Um, so I, I just want to share that, that to me, all of this makes perfect sense. And so what I'm curious about is, um, naturally, if you look at the individual, uh, they could be at, on at any point in this development, the developmental stages. Right. And it's fully connected to us as a collective, uh, you know, humanity or just a group of people or a nation or, you know, wherever you want to draw that line. And then that obviously, you know, the intelligence just continues. So every, every, every intelligence is its own whole, whole on, but also then part of a bigger thing, which it's its own thing, part of a bigger thing. And so on it goes. But if you look at where we are today, and humanity as a whole, which obviously you know has extreme points to both sides, where how would you describe where we are in that development? Well, um, that's 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 an interesting um, area, and, and we have some very very direct responses to that question. Um, let me uh, let me give a kind of introduction to, to that general question itself. Um, because what, what often happens as people try to answer that kind of question is they, they don't get fundamentally the direction that evolution itself is moving and how each sort of higher stage of relation actually relates to its previous stage. So um, one of the things that's harder to understand is that each stage of evolution produces greater depth and less span. Now, depth simply means the number of levels of reality in any given holon. So a cell, for example, includes just roughly, there's a cellular level, and then it includes a molecular level, and then that includes an atomic level, and that includes a subatomic level. So just even in those broad terms, that's at least four levels of, of reality right there. And so that's what greater depth means. Evolution is headed in the direction of adding more and more depth. And we see that from the Big Bang forward. But it also produces less Span. Span means the number of holons that are actually on any given level. So what this means, for example, is as you move, just to give some quick for instances, as you move from atoms to molecules, so that's an increase in depth, 
But then the number of molecules is always, with no exceptions, going to be less than the number of atoms. Always. Because molecules include atoms. And by the way, that's actually uh, an inherent um, characteristic that integral identifies as occurring with evolution, which is each higher stage transcends but includes its previous stage. So molecules transcend atoms. They go beyond them. They're actually new emergent realities that show up that haven't occurred anywhere before. So molecules transcend atoms, but of course, molecules also include atoms. I mean, they're actually enfolded. Atoms are actually enfolded in molecules. And so likewise, as molecules move to cells, cells transcend but include molecules. Cells went beyond molecules, but clearly they also included them. And there are always less cells than there are molecules, and there are always less molecules than there are atoms, and there are no exceptions to that. And there's no exceptions, of course, because the higher holon actually includes several of the lower holon. So molecules include several atoms. So there will, without exception, always be more atoms than there are molecules. And it's the same with cells. And then as you go up the tree of life and you get more and more complex biochemistry and so on, you you see the same kind of principles happening. So what happens when you actually bring these different holons together into their collective form? Do those higher holons, the collective, does that collective become bigger or smaller? The individual holons get bigger and bigger, always, because they're always transcending and including the previous holon. That's in the individual holon, atoms to molecules to cells and so on. But what about collectives? Those actually get smaller. And this is where people get confused. So if Eric Jans has done a book called The Self-Reflexive Universe, and in that he carefully looks at sort of every individual holon going through the whole periodic table of the elements and then into higher um, holons, including life forms and human beings. And then he shows the relation between those individual holons and their collectives, what happens when you when you bring them together. Well, if you look at atoms, you can bring just atoms without any molecules or any cells. Those when those are brought together, they they can form uh, things like galaxies. And we have reason to believe that there are higher forms in galaxies, but at the beginning, when there were only atoms, it, no higher holons in the universe, except atoms, they still formed galaxies. That was a collective form of, of atoms when you brought them together. Galaxies are pretty big. And then as you move from atoms to molecules, particularly longer molecules, then those individual molecules transcended and included atoms, and they were bigger than atoms. But when you had long molecular forms, and you brought those together, 
those actually formed planets. So you actually had crystals and long molecular forms and so on, not necessarily life forms. You didn't yet have cells emerging, but you did have molecules and planets are much smaller than galaxies. Fine. So on that planet, if life ever emerged, if a cell, actually a living cell emerged on that planet, then that cell is going to collectively form some sort of broad uh, ecosystem. And again, that cell transcends and includes molecules. So the cell is bigger than molecules, but the collective of all cells forming an ecosystem on the surface of the planet, that's much smaller than the planet itself is. And then as you get up to even sort of more complex animals and you get up to something like um, chimpanzees or great apes or something like that, and those come together, they'll form families, and families are much smaller than ecosystems. So we see the same thing happen in human development, for example. And here we're looking at particularly interior stages of development. And what you find is that individuals indeed go through those interior developmental stages of growing up that we mentioned. And each higher stage transcends and includes the previous stage. In other words, it has all the capacities that the previous stage had, but it adds something. And then you, um, but it's also itself, and the number of people that reach that stage becomes smaller and smaller. That's a, a real issue. And so it's just something that we have to keep in mind. Now, it, one of the, um, in a sense, complicating facts is that one of the things that's happening with these human stages of development is that even though there are fewer people at higher stages, just like there are fewer people in college than there are in kindergarten, um, but even though there are fewer people at those higher stages, if you actually then look at those higher stages themselves and what's happening in these stages of development, it's, as we earlier mentioned briefly, these stages of development in a sense, because they are transcending and including their predecessor, then the identity, what you actually feel like, it becomes more inclusive and more inclusive and more inclusive. And so even though there are fewer people that can do that, their identity is becoming broader and more inclusive and more inclusive. And so we really do move from things like egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integrated stages of, of development overall. And most developmental models actually give around six to eight stages in, in, that, uh, in, in that overall process. But if we, are, if we are looking at collectives and saying that things get bigger and bigger and bigger, we just have to be a little bit careful about what we mean by that. Because as, as I said, evolution in general produces greater depth, that's bigger, but less span, that gets smaller. But in individual interiors, that greater depth itself becomes more inclusive and more inclusive and more inclusive, even as span continues to become smaller.
smaller. So that's an issue we have to look out for. And the last thing I'll say about that, because I'll just open another area very quickly, and then we can go either way you want to go. But there's another type of identity that human beings have access to. And that's not just development as a relative, isolated individual self, nor really even a collective development. It's what's referred to as this Satori, this waking up experience, because that is universally reported as being an experience with absolutely everything. Again, it's sometimes described as experiencing a ground of all being. But all being means all being. You literally feel that you're one with absolutely everything that's arising in, in the entire finite universe. And this has been an ever-present ground of being as long as there was time. I mean, all the way back to the Big Bang uh, or uh, before, for that matter. So um, that's just another thing. The reason that I mentioned that in the same discussion as mentioning how individual evolution produces greater depth but less span is some people confuse that waking up with just being a, a continuation of evolutionary unfolding. Actually, Teilhard de Chardin did this with his Omega Point. He understood waking up quite well, but he didn't get the fact that evolution produces less span in terms of the higher stages that, that it gets to. And so he simply felt that the Omega Point was when span itself increased to embrace everything. And that's not what happens. Identity or depth, that expands to include everything that exists. So there we have that one. <laughs> there we have that one. And, and well, my choice here and where we go with this is, is obvious because um, having had those experiences myself of, of Satori, it's, it's, uh, it's <laughs> after that happens, it tends to be the only topic <laughs> that you're left with to some extent. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> which makes for boring conversations at times. <laughs> but I want to stay with how these uh, then are connected. So um, would you then say that that means that fewer people has those Satori experiences? Because that, that becomes immense depth, right? That becomes all of it. Uh, and in, in that very same moment, it becomes nothing because there's just no boundary. Yeah, here's the really, really fascinating aspect about that. And by the way, this is a point that's never really been uh, understood or, or advanced prior, prior to the integral view. And it's caused an enormous amount of confusion and serious problems uh, in history. And that is that this process that we referred to a couple times as growing up, and that specifically just means the actual developmental unfolding that human beings, or really evolution itself, just the stages of unfolding, the stages of development that well, any whole one goes through, but we're talking about human beings right now. So the actual stages, as we said, from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integrated, those types of stages of unfolding, those start when you're born, when you don't have any of those higher stages, and then will increase throughout your 
lifespan, including adult lifespan, as you continue to add those stages. And then there's another process that, again, generically we refer to as just the waking up process. And that indeed is the process that most of the world's great mystical traditions were involved with. And they did present some version of ultimate unity consciousness or um Tibetans call it one case. Uh, it's a divine oneness, divine unity, um, a oneness of the ground of all being. And of course, when people have that experience, because it is an experience of what's often referred to as just ultimate truth. Um, and, and it is that. Um, certainly, the individuals who have had a, a genuine waking up experience or a genuine Satori type experience are almost unanimous that that's is the most certain experience they've ever had uh it um it, it is indeed an ultimate or absolute reality yeah. i mean even jordan peterson who certainly almost anybody who's on the net knows jordan peterson he has over a billion views but he explicitly said that if we look at these two types of consciousness, one of which he called isolated, separate individual consciousness, and then one of which he called, at his terms, were absolute consciousness, and that meant exactly that. He says this oceanic dissolution and oneness with everything. And he, he did use the term absolute uh, consciousness, and he said the evidence for both of those types of of consciousness is not deniable. He said, so the idea that the transcendental experience is not real, he says, that's just wrong. And it is, it's just wrong. There are people that don't know about it, but they just don't know about an important part of reality. And that's not my fault. So, <laughs> um, so we do have these growing up stages of development, and those are the stages that you're relative self goes through and then there's this waking up process and here's the strange part a person at almost any stage of growing up can have a waking up experience now this is problematic because you will interpret your waking up experience according to your stage of growing up so we mentioned, I, I said there were like six to eight sort of stages of growing up. And I've only mentioned a, a, a quick summary uh, that goes from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integrated. But let's say you're at a, an ethnocentric stage of development. Now, ethnocentric is better than a previous stage of egocentric because... Oh, well, a lot of developmentalists call that previous egocentric stage a term like selfish or narcissistic or self-concerned. And there, you basically don't give a rat's ass about anybody. It's just, it's yourself. That's the only thing that counts. That's it. Then, so as you move up to ethnocentric, um, some developmentalists actually call this a move from selfish to care. Because at these ethnocentric stages, you extend your identity to a whole group or groups of people. And so you start to care for all of them. 
essentially, just like you kind of, in the previous stage, you cared only about yourself. When you get to this ethnocentric stage, you're now caring for a whole group of of people. But in almost all cases, you're caring for your group, but you can't yet care for all groups. That would be the next stage, the world-centric stage. And then you do care for all groups. But at this at this intermediate ethnocentric stage, you are extending care to your group, but it's only your group. So it's a very us versus them mentality. And so somebody at the ethnocentric stage uh, can also be ethnocentric in, in the derogatory ways that that term is meant. So you can be racist, sexist, misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic, and most people who are at ethnocentric stages are various uh, sort of versions of, of those sorts of, of prejudice um, um, orientations. But somebody in ethnocentric stage, for example, wouldn't have any trouble with something like slavery, as long as you know the slaves are some other group and not a member of my group. But as long as they're you know, an other, then slavery's fine. And so here's the kicker about that. And and one of the ways we see that this waking up experience is different from, and can be had at any stage of growing up, but you will tend to interpret that waking up according to your growing up stage. So most of the great waking up traditions, when they were, when they were first discovered, including Zen Buddhism and Vedanta Hinduism and uh, Christian mysticism, all of those occurred in cultures that were still ethnocentric. And that means that even though they were having this, or at least some of them were having this experience of waking up or ultimate unity, they still in their relative self, which is the self that's going to actually interpret that waking up experience in their mind, the tools they had in their mind weren't yet world-centric. They were still ethnocentric. And so in all of the great traditions that first discovered waking up, for example, virtually all of them had slavery. Slavery wasn't outlawed until the emergence, particularly this began in the, with the Western Enlightenment, the emergence of this world-centric stage of growing up. Now, it didn't really give a lot of attention to waking up, but it did increase from ethnocentric to world-centric in growing up. And that's why with the Western Enlightenment, we started to get all these treatises on things that were called like the universal rights of human beings. That was a... a unbelievably new concept and that's why i mean all the previous the previous ethnocentric stages in medieval europe it meant ethnocentric only you had rights only if you were a christian if you weren't a christian when you died you're going to burn in hell forever you don't have any rights you only have rights if you're part of the ethnic christian um group and so that's why there were still slaves in medieval Europe. And that's why slavery wasn't outlawed until these world-centric stages of growing up. 
And then in about a 100-year period, from 1770 to 1870, slavery was outlawed in every major rational industrial country on the face of the planet. And so, and that's only a couple hundred years ago, by the way, so you can see how relatively slow evolution is. I mean, really? We just got rid of it. But it does show that we do have this growing up process, and it is different from waking up. But the thing about growing up is it is the development of our our mental capacities and so of our capacity to take the role of other uh, where our identity is the type of rationality that we can use or not use Um, most modern sciences were invented only in that world-centric period because rationality itself began to emerge as part of that growing up process. And so um, we really had the first sciences, in a sense, invented by Kepler and Galileo starting around 1605. The world had tons of waking up traditions prior to that time, but no Kepler Kepler and, and, and Galileo's, no Isaac Newton's. So what we're finding, and this is the basic problem, is that people can have that kind of waking up experience, but they can still interpret it in ethnocentric ways, or they can interpret it in world-centric ways, or they can interpret it in integrated ways. Those are completely independent processes. And by the way, it's vice versa. You can be quite highly developed in growing up and never had a Satori in your entire life. As a matter of fact, most Westerners are exactly like that. And so you can be highly developed in waking up, very low in growing up. Uh, You can be very high in growing up, very low in waking up. It's extremely important to see that these are two different unfolding processes that human beings have access to and they do follow different paths and essentially different timetables so that's a major major issue and one of the things that we really have to be careful about is that particularly when people first get on to some sort of waking up discipline they start to have a satori or something is they start to think god that's all this world needs it's just satori for everybody well now wait a minute we had that, and everybody had slavery. And we had that, and it was still us versus them. We don't just need waking up. We also need growing up. And incidentally, those are only two of the five main areas that Integral includes. <laughs> so, and, and obviously, now it's also becoming obvious to me then the problem of, of waking up, because that will then most likely explain all of the religious wars that we've had, because most major religions looks as if they've sort of been born out of waking up moments. But if, if, if you're at an ethnocentric level, then you'll just start fighting uh, with each other for, you know, who, who was right in the waking up moment and everyone else was wrong. Yep. All right. Fascinating. So, yeah, it becomes uh, problematic to say the least. And, and it makes sense that waking up in itself, like even once you have that, once you learn of it, I, I would say that it's also... Uh, or I can feel that it's problematic for the individual uh, as well, because it makes you, to some extent, care less about everything. 
Right. Uh, that's a, that's my personal experience. That uh, you know, in understanding it, I also care. Well, I care less about the things that most people care about right. in society, and that becomes unless you start a religion, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and, and get a following, which then obviously then can create a lot of other side effects and, and problems. It can be kind of difficult to take that experience and bring something positive to the world beyond just, well, obviously you can bring it to the people around you because you, when you see how things are, it's easier to, to forgive everybody for everything. Right. But it's still problematic and this is I don't have hard data on this at all, but but in my own personal experience, I feel as if I've for a number of years now, it's starting to change, but I, as if I've closed myself off almost from most of society because it's it's sort of like, and I wanted to ask that too because when I'm waking up experience, it sort of puts you not on the sidelines, but just on a parallel path to everything else. It's sort of like a bug in the system, like you're just falling out of uh, what you thought was actually going on. And it, it can be quite difficult to sort of get back in or connect those two uh, just for the individual. Well, that's exactly right. And so one of the things that started to happen as an uh, integral um, approach becomes better and better known is that there are um, an increasing number of spiritual teachers who previously really focused on waking up. Um, there's an increasing number of them who are actually taking what we call an integral spiritual approach. And that does put waking up sort of, that's absolutely central that's absolutely important but there are these other aspects of life that if you don't just find techniques methods very short practices that can touch in with those then you there really is this tendency uh, to just kind of withdraw into uh, uh, a nirvana and just let all of samsara you know go yeah and I mean, ultimately, even according to the traditions, that's not ultimately uh, um, an acceptable response because although the, most of the traditions, most of the great waking up spiritual traditions first began with an attempt to, just like early Buddhism did, to get into nirvana and out of samsara. I mean, that, that was the actual goal. It was to get into emptiness and out of the world of form. And if you did that, that was good. And what started to happen, and by the way, that state of pure emptiness, pure formlessness, that's a very real state. You can get into that state. And when it says it's free of pain, free of suffering, free of ego, free of desire, it's all of that. It's yeah. literally free of all of that. And so we saw examples of this, for example, in the Vietnam War, when several Vietnamese monks protesting the war got into that state. They sit in lotus position on live TV. They get into that pure nirvana, that pure formless state, free of pain and suffering, had their bodies doused with gasoline and set on fire. And every one of them burned to the ground in ashes and not one of them flinched once. That's nirvana. It's real. You can get in 
to that state. And that's the way Buddhism and most of the early spiritual traditions around the world, that's what the aim was. And then in the East, as one example, this guy named Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna comes along and he ended up being the founder of what was called Mahayana Buddhism. And he comes along and says, you know, I, I'm not saying that Nirvana state isn't real. It's just it's not the deepest state. There's a deeper state you can get into. And that's a state that doesn't split nirvana from samsara. Doesn't split that realm of pure formlessness from the manifest realm of the world around you and all the sentient beings in that realm. That's the realm of samsara. But it doesn't get rid of that. This deeper state actually contacts a deeper unity of both of those so that samsara and nirvana are actually not two or non-dual so as the heart sutra that was a, a treatise that was a, a a product of this mahayana buddhist revolution says that which is emptiness is not other than form that which is form is not other than emptiness and you're supposed to find the unity of nirvana and samsara you're not supposed to throw one of them out and just end up having a fragmented and limited identification. So that changed everything for the traditions. And in the West, we saw that kind of approach start with people like Plotinus. So there was this fundamental understanding that the world of manifest form was not two with this infinite form, formless ground uh, of all being. But there wasn't any real techniques that allowed individuals to uh, explore this world of form, to find out actual information about that. So, for example, if you had this, if, you, if it's several thousand years ago, and you're walking in the woods and you see the sun um, overhead and you feel the earth underneath you and you're walking through the woods and you have a profound satori then all of a sudden you feel that you're one with the sun and you're one with the earth and you're one with the entire woods that you're walking through but you'll still think that the sun goes around the earth and you'll still think the earth is flat and all those trees you're walking through, you'll have no idea that those contain atoms and molecules and cells. All that, that realization of ultimate truth tells you almost nothing about relative truth. I mean, you can get into that nirvana and it will tell you nothing really about samsara, except you're one with it. So that was a problem. And that's why all of these original traditions that had these waking up experiences that's why many of them still thought that the sun circled the earth and the earth was flat none of them knew anything about atoms or molecules or cells or any of that and the problem was it, it, it took a fair amount of work to actually get in to those nirvana states and so as evolution continued to unfold around the world in some areas in particular became less and less common for people to actually try and have those waking up experiences even though those were the only approaches that had ever been discovered that actually showed you this ultimate ground of all being 
It's just that ultimate ground doesn't change. It's timeless. It's infinite. It was there before the Big Bang. It was there with the Big Bang. It was there after the Big Bang. And experience that ground of being tells you nothing about any of those at all. Just like you can experience that and still think the Earth is flat and the sun goes around the Earth. So when we started getting these major discoveries in the realm of form, in the realm of samsara, namely when we started to get the Western Enlightenment and the emergence of modern sciences, those didn't tell us anything about that ultimate ground. But they started telling us an enormous amount about the relative truths in the world of samsara in the world of form. And that really started to have, indeed, an extraordinary revolutionary uh, impact on on humanity at large. Among other things, increased the average lifespan from around 30 years uh, to uh, well over 70 years. And so, and told us about atoms and molecules and cells and all of those things. I mean, it really was quite, quite stunning. What still is problematic is that we've never really had a major culture anywhere in the world that pre-modern, modern, or postmodern that actually included both growing up and waking up. They've done one or the other and never, and never really done well on both. And so that's another reason that um, there's an increasing number of people that find some sort of integral approach to be to be truly important. And if if you do um, really get taken up with that with that waking up experience, and and there isn't, it almost has to be a sort of deliberate practice or attempt to include that with various types of interactions with the exterior you know, world of samsara or form, there really is a tendency to kind of drift. And it's not a problem at all, you know, in its uh, initial forms. If that's all you do, though, uh, 10, 15 years, you'll start regretting it. Yeah, and this is, it's fascinating. It's also, I mean, uh, a question that pops up in my head here or a thought is that, you know, if you look at why, we process all of this information and and we try to figure stuff out, which is what people have always been doing, right? Yeah. And that's what that that seems to be what holon is doing. We're we're redistributing energy and we're processing information and we're creating new holons. That's that's it. Right. And and if and I'm not saying there is a purpose to this, but if there is a purpose to that, it seems to be you know if we gather more and more info and and process more data and more information, that tends to be at least using the the brain of a human here. That tends to be in search of truth. Like we're trying to figure something out. We're trying to find out the truth. Right. And in finding the truth, the absolute truth, then which is you know it is what it is. And once you found it, you found it, and it, it's always been there. It's just interesting to think about how we have this process of, of trying to, you know, the relative truth where we just go deeper and find out more and figure more stuff out, right. which is in a way, it's the search of absolute truth. We keep doing the relative truth. And then once we find the absolute truth, we're there. But at the same time, to your point, depending on where you are on this de- developmental stage, it could create a lot of problems you 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 might just stop helping out with the with the relative truth seeking which is at the end of the day still just about the absolute truth seeking see what i'm getting so it becomes this 
infinite loop system that um, I don't know if, if there's even a question connected to this. <laughs> it just comes out. Well, I, as, um, yeah. What are you talking? Well, yeah. I mean, just just briefly, it was it was what I I had had um, just uh, quickly mentioned, and that is that there there really hasn't been a culture, and certainly not today's culture, um, that has included both waking up and and growing up. And by include, I mean it's actually included in educational systems. You really are fleshing out a genuinely non-dual approach. You are aware of ultimate emptiness, and you are aware of relative form. And those are not two. And that means you really do have to sort of keep your thumb on both pans of that scale, or it's going to tip in just one way or the other. And that's what's happened to every culture we've ever had. And there's not a single great religion in the world that understands stages of growing up and how important those are. And in, in worldwide, the percentage of the population that are at ethnocentric or lower levels of development is around 60 to 70 percent. That means only around 30 percent or so are at world-centric or higher stages. That's bad enough, but most of those people have no clue about waking up. And so that's an issue. And we can just start to see by how inadequate those fundamental approaches are, just how badly we do need more integral or integrative approaches. And given the fact that, as I say, we've never really seen any major culture anywhere that's done that. There's no major religion anywhere that does that. And then correspondingly, even though some of the religions have forms of waking up, but no understanding of growing up, the cultures that understand growing up have no clue about waking up. So it's really a problem. And well, clearly, uh, integral approach thinks that we need to do, starting with our educational system, is say, hey, wait a minute, both of these are important. And we clearly need to work on both of those. Because uh, not doing that is just um, a nightmare in every direction you look. Yeah, I could I could not agree more. Uh, that makes perfect sense. And it, but you know, obviously or hopefully, that is potentially what then is is bound to happen because of your work, but also you know some of these trends that we see when we start to get meditation and stuff like that into the school system, which is is painfully slow and and really starting at the most rudimentary levels but it's still starting uh, at least in, in certain parts of the world those things are are starting to happen and uh, right. it's, it's gonna take it's gonna take a while right. uh, I want to make sure we have time for this question that my friend Federico Pina who's uh, he's uh, a whole lot of great depth um, wanted me to ask you and that is um, regarding the the stages of development once again so it seems that one of the most pressing problems with with people being on different stages is that it's really hard to communicate across the stages yep. uh, it's really hard to find an uh, an understanding at least in, in in one direction and and it tends to just build up a great deal of frustration and and conflict and can definitely explain a lot of the of the global 
yep. problems we have today. Yep. Is there a way beyond just trying to make more people grow up, uh, which is um, obviously you know the, the one approach that will be needed? But is there a way to find patterns or way ways of communicating, or you know, could there be like a school of thought for how do you communicate? across all the stages? How do I adapt my communication so people can actually understand based on where they are and we can at least lessen the friction? Or is it, or, or is that, is it, are we screwed? <laughs> is it impossible to communicate? Yeah, yeah. well, um, there, there's sort of uh, a two-part answer to that question. Um, in terms of what do we actually do about the problem of people being at different stages of growing up, is, first of all, the only way we're really going to get at that is by people understanding and being educated into the fact that there are somewhere between these six to eight major stages of growing up. People have to know that those are there and that if you are one of the things that you'll be taught about them is that if you are at fundamental different stages of this growing up process, you will have a hard time communicating to somebody at a deep, at a different stage. And that's the only way that's going to actually be addressed on a culture-wide level. The second way that it can be addressed isn't that widespread, but that does occur you're asking specifically, is there a way one person can know how to speak to these different stages and so on? And that's, yes, that person can themselves study these various stages of growing up. They'll learn different values that they have, different motivations that they have, and different ways you can communicate with them. And so that person who has that understanding will start to be able to do that. But at large, for the culture at large, this has to be something. And again, I, you know, I've looked at over a hundred of these developmental models. The amount of information, well, I'll just say with Jordan Peterson, these, this is not deniable. The, the amount of information on these things is stunning. And so that has to get into a broad, broad cultural understanding. Uh, and that would include uh, our educational system, certainly our college areas. Right now, ask most college professors, what do you think about the stages of human growth and development? They won't have a bloody idea what you're talking about. So it's it's really about as, as um, well, it needs an integral view badly. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But then, uh, and then, you know, to me, uh, being a father as of 10 months back, it's kind of like if you're at the integral level, you need to be a parent. You need to understand how, how a child understands and sees the world and then adapt your communication to that. But then obvious challenges that occur, at least to me then, is to understand the integral framework. Don't you have to be sort of at the integral level? And, and the other aspect would be if you're not, if you're at one of these, let's call them lower levels, and the way humanity tends to think about whenever we say higher and lower, there's, an, there's a competition in there that just happens in the brain instantly, and nobody wants to be on a lower level. And especially if you're on a lower level, <laughs> you might think even more like that uh, about the world. So I see a challenge in educating people about this without, I mean, you need to take out the value system out of it. You need to take out the competition or else people won't want to listen. Because uh, if I if I tell a person, well, you're obviously at the egocentric level and I'm at this other level, 
then in their mind, I've just said, I'm better than you. Well, that's true. And that's always a problem with human beings in general. But, you know, we've essentially figured out ways to, for example, we understand that there are 12 grades of education. And if you're in the eighth grade, that's not something you're overwhelmingly embarrassed by. So to the extent that we can just start to get, you know, just to back that, well, also any developmental model will point out that it's an unending growth process. So nobody's ever at just the highest stage. <laughs> so it's an unending. Nobody ever wins. It's an unending process. So uh, uh, that has to be uh, understood as well. I know I've taken a lot of your time. So thank you so much, Ken, for coming on this podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And I know that you've taught me and uh, my listeners a great deal of important knowledge. So thank you for that. My pleasure, my friend. That was a conversation with Ken Wilbur. Thank you guys for listening and as always being part of this podcast i urge you to reach out with any thoughts questions ideas that came up based on this conversation with ken wilbur one of the smartest minds on this planet that's it i will see you next week have a good one and uh, you know think about your life as a whole on this week and see where that gets you take care <laughs>